This podcast is for adults 21 years of age and over. We talk about cannabis history and advertise cannabis products. If you're not 21, please come back when you are. Spoke Media. Hey, it's Abdullah. And Bean. And welcome back for yet another edition of Great Moments in Weed History. On this podcast, my partner Bean and I, who are both cannabis journalists and media makers, go through one of the more fascinating points in the very, very long history of cannabis. I have no prior knowledge of the story we're about to hear. Bean has written and researched it, and you and I will be hearing it together and I'm super excited to hear today's story. I've got a joint already rolled up here. Bean, what do you got? Oh, today's story is about a couple who sort of unwittingly get pulled into a cannabis sensation. It changes the whole world. It changes the cannabis landscape. And it is a beautiful love story, and it comes with a little special treat at the end. I can't wait to hear it, man. All right, well, if you're at home and you're not quite ready to go and you need to hit pause, roll up a joint, pack a bowl, roll a blunt, do what you do with the dabs these days. Uh, Whatever the kids are doing with those dabs. I don't know either. I was up on it 18 months ago, but the technology has changed. I'm not up on it. You are the ripped Van Winkle of dabbing after 18 (laughs) months. The whole You don't even recognize your own community. (laughs) Seriously. People are taking their brims of their hats now and curling them. We're back to that? (laughs) I've seen it. So I think we've got all the pieces in place. We might be just about ready for another great moment in weed history. Spoke media. All right, so I'm going to spark up this J right here. Uh, Bean, why don't we get started, man? The hero of today's great moment in weed history was born in 1877 in San Francisco. Hmm, 1877 in San Francisco. So this is someone who came of age at the turn of the 20th century. Hmm... After surviving the earthquake of 1906 in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. which hit 7.9 on the Richter scale and led to the destruction of 80% of the city, she left for Paris. On the very day she arrived in the City of Lights, she met Gertrude Stein. All right, so Gertrude Stein, who is an author, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Who I've never read, so like most authors. (laughs) And, uh... Okay, so hmm, someone who met Gertrude Stein in Paris. So the two women meet in Paris. They become lovers and creative partners for the next 40 years. I'll better tell you her name. All right, what's her name? So her name, and tell me if this rings a bell, is Alice B. Toklas. No, it doesn't. <laughs> awesome. This okay, is great. great. So I have now, I really have no prior knowledge <laughs> because I've never heard of this person. Uh, but... It's the name is vaguely familiar. I'm sure in going through cannabis stuff, this is a prominent cannabis figure from the time I may have come across her. Well, like I said, this was they, they inadvertently 
create this great moment in weed history. Oh. Uh, so they're they're famous in their own right, at least in, you know, turn of the century, early 1900s literary and art circles, which we're going to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a little later down in the road, they're going to do this majorly impactful weed moment. Wow. Kind of without realizing it. So she moves in 1906. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's a little bit of a slow burn to get to the our great moment, sure. Um, but we definitely need to understand who we're who we're talking about here. So, gotcha. I'm getting uh, Gertrude Stein was also an expatriate. So her her family was American and pretty wealthy, but she was raised uh, largely in Europe. Eventually, she moved back to the United States to pursue an education, but then she goes back to Europe mm. with her brother Leo, and they begin collecting modern art. And they are some of the earliest serious collectors of modern art. And they're buying up paintings by like Cezanne, Renoir, Matisse, Ah. and all these Picassos before anybody knows who they are. So they sort of had a knack for recognizing the value of this art at the time before it became insanely valuable world-renowned art. Yeah, and, and by being a patron of these artists, they're actually helping them continue to paint. Uh, Picasso, in particular, for the rest of his life, was very, very grateful to Gertrude Stein for buying some of his early paintings, Mm. which allowed him to focus on his art uh, when everybody else was looking at these paintings and saying, like, oh, modern art, it doesn't make any sense. Or like, How come the, his eyeballs are both on the same side of his head? Because <laughs> he's a genius. <laughs> <laughs> That's why. Um, but, you know, on the flip side, this becomes a very, very valuable art collection as well. Mm. Um, and so after a long courtship, Alice finally moved into Gertrude Stein's lavish apartment at the 27 Rue de Fleurs uh, in Paris. And by this point, by the time Alice B. Toklas moves in with Gertrude Stein, this house is literally overflowing with, like, masterpieces of all these modern artists. Wow, insane. To the point where the paintings are, like, three high on the walls, like in the rooms where Oh, wow, they're running out of wall space literally <laughs> to put all this priceless art. They're like, where are we going to put this? Uh, another Picasso, hold on a second. <laughs> I think if I move that Matisse into the other room, and then I'll take the smaller Picasso, I'll put it in that little place. We, we can <laughs> tack one more up on the walls here. Uh, so here we are. We're in Paris. Uh, finally, Alice and Gertrude are living together in this beautiful house full of art. Gertrude Stein is sort of an influential intellectual, but she's not very well known outside of this sort of Paris scene. Right. Um, But what ends up happening is that because they have all these paintings on the wall and there's no, like, internet and pictures and stuff, painters are just showing up. Renoir is just like, knock, knock, knock. Hello, I need to show my paintings to this guy. No way. Let me in. Oh, no way. So it becomes a sort of like default gallery for these guys to show their stuff? Yeah. And they're just like, you know, these are like artists of the, you know, early 1900s in Paris. They're a wild bunch, you know, and they're they're showing up at all hours. And so I heard you say there's no internet at this time. (laughs) Huh. I guess I can see why they were going around doing this kind of shit. Wow, that's amazing. So 
what a special little hub this place had suddenly become uh, in this specific place in time. Uh, kind of a meeting place for like all these amazing artists. Yeah, it's like if you're lucky enough and you're especially in the creative world, you know, you come across these places where like it's happening. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, People yeah. are coming in and out. You know, there's something in the air. There's some nucleus. And in this case, it's this home and it's this art collection that's drawing people from different worlds and cross-pollinating them. And so what eventually happens is all these painters, Picasso, I mean, it sounds amazing in theory that Picasso like shows up drunk at three in the morning with like five people yeah, but to when throw an impromptu party. But when it actually happens, you're like, ah, oh, fuck, it's Picasso again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pablo. Uh, so what they do, and, and Alice is, uh, Alice Pitoklis is sort of the, she's running the house. And Gertrude Stein is sort of more the uh, out-front person of this scene, but Alice B. Toklas is running the house, and eventually she's like, okay, here's the deal. Yeah. Put it out to all the drunken painters of Paris. Mm -hmm. Saturday night? You don't even need an invitation. House is open. Come by. Have drinks. Wow. I'll cook. Everybody's going to be here. Uh, the, the people who come are like Hemingway, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, James Joyce, Sinclair Lewis, Ezra Pound, wow. T.S. Eliot, Charlie Chaplin, Salvador Dali are like all regulars. Oh, my God. Thing. But she's like, Saturday. <laughs> Just Saturday. So, so basically, she's, uh, she's doing what, what uh, the Baltimore cops in the wire did with uh, Amsterdam. You move your people into any designated area I told you about and you'll have immunity from arrest and prosecution. You're free to make your drops, collect what need collecting, won't nobody bother you. You got my word on it. They basically, mm -hmm. you know, she was like, well, I can't have you fucking up my entire week, so just fuck <laughs> up one day for me and we'll call it even. <laughs> yeah, and of course they love it. Sure, they sure. Just, if you've ever, have you ever lived in the party house? Uh, yes, uh, once or twice I've lived in the party house. Uh, and I mean, there is this like, there's this energy to it that's really amazing, but, you know, you also really start to appreciate privacy. <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's best to live down the block from the party house yeah. in my uh, personal... Oh, that's the ideal. Yes, that's the ideal situation. And so, yeah, I mean, this is a very pivotal time in world history, a very pivotal time in art history. You know, the, the sheer idea of modern art pushed up against consciousness, you know, mm. pushed up against the limits of the imaginations of people. And a lot of what's going on in this salon will reverberate in different art movements and modes of creativity. And uh, it's this cauldron of ideas and cross-pollination. Um, it's really cool. Wow. And I mean, like, I'm assuming that there was some drug use going on here, right? I mean, okay, obviously they're drinking and stuff, but like, uh, do we have an idea of what that looked like? Well, you know, I will say this because I don't want to get too far ahead of our story, but yeah. I think to get ahead of our story, I'll go back. Do you uh, remember in the episode that started with Napoleon invading Egypt? Yeah. That ended up bringing hashish to France, and there was that hashishans club. Yeah, 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 of course, yeah. All those, like, you know, famous French literary icons, like, hanging out together, 
Baudelaire and uh, who else was in there? Baudelaire, uh, Dumas. Yeah, that's uh, right. Balzac and right. some others. My favorite, Balzac. <laughs> <laughs> he smiles every time I say Balzac. Like <laughs> but yeah, of course. So here we have another iteration of like a similar thing. I mean, I think in those types of situations, it's only a matter of time before cannabis makes an appearance. Yeah, absolutely. And these, this sort of group of Parisian uh, literati and artists, whether they're French-born or expatriates, they're looking back to that era of Dumas and Baudelaire as very inspirational to them, the same way right. we might like look at music of the 60s and 70s and be like, oh, cool, wouldn't it have been amazing to be alive then? And yeah, um, yeah. so this is just this long continuum that really does go back to Napoleon and this hashish culture mm-hmm. that develops in France. So meanwhile, um, Gertrude Stein was a celebrated novelist, poet, playwright, and public intellectual in her own right. And she also served as a mentor and a patron to a lot of these down-and-out artists who came to Paris in the 1920s. Um, She even gave them their most lasting moniker, uh, the Lost Generation. Ah, okay. So that's the collective name for for all these uh, artists is the Lost Generation? Yeah, it's like the Brat Pack. Right, right. Or the Rat Pack. That's sort of what gets hung on them. And it's sort of this idea of these people who came out of World War I uh, really traumatized and drank a lot and got into existential philosophies and really questioned, you know, what kind of a world would have a world war. So these guys are kind of like the the advanced thinkers of the time. And like, you know, like Paris is kind of like the hop in place for all this kind of like edgy creative thought. Yeah, Paris in the 20s is legendary. And this is like the center of that. So you're really in a, in a heady brew here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so while Gertrude Stein's doing all of this, Alice Pitoklis collaborates with her on all the creative projects, organizes the salons, and she cooks these uh, elaborate meals on Saturday night for the, for the salons. Mm-hmm. And according to James Beard, who's actually like the guy. Yeah, the guy. I uh, know who James Beard is because I was actually nominated for a James Beard Award one time. Uh, Interesting story. Not a great moment of weed history. Maybe kind of a great moment of weed history, but... For uh, Bong Appetit. For Bong Appetit, that's right. Yeah, so James Beard, the guy, not James Beard, the award, uh, said... Alice B. Toklas is one of the really great cooks of all time. She went all over Paris to find the right ingredients for her meals. This is all going to come back soon. Mm-hmm. So mm. Note the meals, the cooking. Oh. Uh, the secret of her talent was taking great pains and having a remarkable palate. Interesting. So at these parties, it was Alice Toklas who was kind of the chef or, or whatever. She was the one preparing all the food while Gertrude Stein was talking about like, you know, paint tones and whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like, with modes of duality. Modes Basically, of duality. like any party, there's like four nerds talking about nerd stuff in the corner and everyone else is hanging out by this great French food buffet that's put out. Right. And Alice Toklas is the one behind it. Okay. And so she's going out. She's hitting the streets. She's hitting the street stalls. She's shaking melons. She's, put, <laughs> she's putting her ear to the grapefruits. You know, she's she's really checking this stuff out, and she's selecting ingredients. She's bringing them back and dicing them up, slicing them up, throwing them in a pan, sh- 
shaking it around some more <laughs> and serving it up to all these uh, dorky, uh, kind of cool, tight pants. French artist guys. <laughs> I didn't realize you were an expert in French cuisine yeah. like that. Yep. Uh, you know, I know a little bit about it, and uh, I don't mind, uh, you know, flaunting it now and then. So there's a little piece for you. All right. If you follow that recipe, I'm sure something will come out. Yeah. Something will come out. I believe it was you smack it up, you flip it, and yeah. then you rub it down. Yeah. Smack it on a bing bong. All right. <laughs> so uh, in 1933, Gertrude Stein writes a book. This is weird. She writes a book called The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas that is about how great Gertrude Stein is. What? Okay, so it's her own autobiography, but it's about someone else? No. Gertrude Stein writes this book, calls it The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. So it's written in Alice B. Toklas's voice, but it says by Gertrude Stein on the cover. And... What? Alice B. Toklas in the book is like, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, I've only met three geniuses in my life. Wait. <laughs> Gertrude Stein. And- was this like some kind of like artsy joke or was she seriously just self-aggrandizing? She was seriously self-aggrandizing. Oh, my God. That is completely insane. What kind of fucking <laughs> person does that? Uh, I, I, the only person I know who does that is Gertrude Stein. And it, uh, her <laughs> her writing is very strange and avant-garde. I mean, they're, they're avant-garde people. Um, Alice uh, B. Toklas just rocked a full mustache. Uh, oh, no shit. Yeah. That's dope. You know, yeah, respect yeah. to lady out there rocking a mustache, especially back in the 30s when she probably got like a lot of more shit for it. So, you know. And it's also, you know, this book is kind of one of the first books uh, to deal with homosexuality in, in what we would, I would like to call a modern way or in a way that is accepting and celebratory yeah, of yeah. homosexuality. Um, and that, makes the book kind of a worldwide sensation. They go mm. on a world tour in support of the book. It brings this subject, uh, you know, that everybody was aware of, but no one had a way to talk about. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really was a big step along that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns both of them into worldwide celebrities. That's really cool that the world beyond just the small artistic circles has an appetite for this kind of perspective that, that that they're bringing to a mainstream audience. That's great. That's refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, we're going to take a little weed break in a minute. Oh, yeah. We could use one. I could use one. Um, and the and 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 <laughs> the next half of this is the is the weedy part and the and the world changing uh, occurrence. But so before we get there in in 1946, uh, Gertrude Stein passed away. And French law basically prevented Alice from directly inheriting the estate, which is including all of these paintings. Oh, my God. Yes. And their whole life. Now, they've been a couple for 40 years at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, They've run this home together. And it's complicated. But in essence, Gertrude Stein has to give the paintings to her family because she can't give them directly to Alice. And then (laughs) motherfuckers. Uh, not too many years later, Alice is like basically on a trip out of town and the family comes into the house and takes all the paintings and moves them into a bank vault. Oh my God. And, uh, won't give her anything. And all of a sudden she's, she's, 
she's pretty down and out in Paris, as they say. Oh, my God. Now I ask you, what life force on the planet is going to come to Alice B. Toklas's rescue? Oh, my God. I'm so stoked that cannabis is the thing that is going to save this lady. That's awesome. All right. Well, we'll get to that right after we get to this. Okay, so when we left off, uh, shit had kind of gone south for uh, Alice Toklas. Yeah, I mean, that's tough financially, emotionally, you know, it, and, it, and it reminds us of how shitty the world could be to homosexuals at that time and, and how many people are still living under those conditions that you could be... Uh, and they weren't just a couple. Um, they weren't mm. able to be formally married. Yeah. But they weren't just a couple. They were inseparable. They were mm -hmm. one of those couples that spends all their time together, works on creative projects together, travels together, complements each other's skill sets, and and yeah. and had this sense of mission about them. So to to lose your partner like that, and then <clears throat> be stripped of everything that you had to your name yeah all because of the the greed uh you know of gertrude stein's family i mean i guess th th it's really crazy to think about that they can completely deny the right that someone like alice tokles has to all that art after building an entire life with gertrude stein you know what i mean it's it's, it's really an injustice yeah are you ready for weed to come to the rescue? Oh, yeah, I absolutely am. It's about time. So, uh, we find Alice. She's facing financial ruin, so she decides to write the Alice B. Toklas cookbook, which would compile her star-studded remembrances of the Paris Salon alongside some of her favorite recipes. Oh, wow. All right, so... I, this shows a lot of gusto, I gotta say, uh, for this person. You know what I mean? After losing so much, essentially not only a livelihood, but an entire lifestyle and a home and a, you know, you know, in a community. This is somebody who's like, nope, I won't go down like that. I'm gonna do what I can to make this shit happen. And she's drawing on something that she's practiced in, something that, you know, clearly is a talent of hers. And I mean, that's the best way uh, to beat the blues, as they say. You know what I mean? When the draconian conventions of society get you down, do what you love and try to sell it. You know what I mean? Why the fuck not? So how does the book do? So Alice decides to come out with this cookbook, and she's hoping to produce a culinary reference that would appeal to those seeking a taste of Parisian cafe society hmm. while providing herself with a little nest egg to live on. Uh, and uh, I think every writer can relate to this next part. Yeah, she's like, this is the Salvador Dali club sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> it's got bacon and grilled chicken in it. It's got a little, you know, you know it's like all this like crazy but shit. But the, the bread is a brick. Yeah. And <laughs> the yeah. chicken is a fish that's still alive. <laughs> yeah. And inside its mouth is a tiny dictionary <laughs> open to the word club. All topped with a fried clock. <laughs> 
<laughs> Ooh, when you get them nice and crispy. Oh, yeah, just you know? right. I like a nice alarm, a fried alarm clock. Fried alarm clock. Oh. I'm like, waiter, my clock's a little runny. <laughs> a dolly, little dolly joke. Ooh. <laughs> Getting into it. Getting into the mix. All right. So, uh, uh, so yeah. Uh, so, what happens with the cookbook? As the deadline for the book draws near, Alice has like a lot of pages to fill. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she gets a little worried, uh, and she decides, "Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll ask my friends. I got all these famous, uh, great art friends." So she kind of puts the word out. I need recipes. Writer and avant-garde artist Brian Giesen, most definitely friend of the podcast. And uh-huh. Maybe that gives you a hint of where this is going. This guy sells weed. <laughs> <laughs> he's traveled. He's one of their homies. He's traveled extensively in Morocco. Uh, he's like hung out with... Chick. Yep, Chick. <laughs> he hung out at various times with William Burroughs and Paul Bowles and sort of all these far-out beat generation check, type guys. Check, check, check. And so he decides to kick it up a notch uh, by slipping her a recipe for hashish fudge. Ding! Ding. Right? <laughs> I think the oven just went off. <laughs> that, yeah. that has she fudges. I'll get it. Amazing. Okay, so this guy's cool as fuck. He, he gives her this recipe. She's, you know, frantically trying to fill this book. And, and it's it's got spices and nuts and fruit and cannabis. And so here's Alice B. Toklas many years later reading the recipe in her own words. This is the food of paradise. Baudelaire's artificial paradise. She's referencing uh, Baudelaire from the uh, from the Dube crew. Uh, what was the name of that? <laughs> I forget the name of those guys. But. Uh, well, in French, it's Hashishin. Uh, Club yeah. de Hashishin. Club de Hashishin. I, I think that translates <laughs> what it was. to Dube crew. <laughs> Pretty sure. I don't know my French that well. It might provide an entertaining refreshment for a ladies' bridge club. <laughs> How quaint. I love that. In Morocco, it is thought to be good for warding off the common cold in damp winter weather and is, indeed, more effective if taken with large quantities of hot mint tea. Euphoria and brilliant storms of laughter, ecstatic reveries, an extension of one's personality on several simultaneous planes are to be complacently expected. Ah, complacently <laughs> expected. I love it, man. That, that's a great description for this food will get you stoned. It's way better than that government warning that you see on edibles now. It's like it's like a really poetic version of this product contains marijuana yeah. and can cause, you know, like hallucinations or whatever. It's like this, uh, this is a much nicer way to say it. Yeah, just complacently expect hallucinations mm-hmm. and yeah. you'll be fine. Um, so Alice B. Toklas will later claim that she had no idea that this fudge would get you high uh, when she included it in the cookbook, but this seems highly unlikely based on how explicit and absurd the recipe is. Mm -hmm. Also, Alice had personally visited Tangiers with Gertrude Stein as far back as the 1930s, and lots of the artists in their little circle are definitely known to have gotten down on some Moroccan hash. Oh, no kidding. As everyone should in this lifetime. This Moroccan hashish culture is like as old as any wine culture 
and as particularly in and around the Rift Mountains, there's these Berber villages. For more than a thousand years, they've been cultivating cannabis, and mm-hmm. then they have this dry sift method of uh, separating the trichomes from the plant matter. This is the same product you find in the Amsterdam coffee shops. This is where this guy, Brian, you know, first experiences hash culture, and he has uh, majun, which is this thousand-year-old recipe for, like, I say it's kind of like the air. Uh, it's kind of like the ancestor of the goo ball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, so goo balls, for anyone who doesn't know, you used to be able to get them in the fish lot. I'm sure you still can. So I'm actually a guy who I've never been to a fish show, but I've been to like 15 to 20 fish lots <laughs> because, <laughs> because in college we used to go uh, to the fish lot and just hang out in the lot. And, you know, it, you could grocery shop. You get really good acid, mushrooms, and, you know, weed. You get really fantastic weed. I mean, you know, like... Uh, this is, the, these statements are not endorsed by the band Fish or its parent company, uh, Fishco. Yeah, Fishco. <laughs> but yeah, totally a great place to score some weed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure the band would endorse that too at this point. A thousand years earlier, <laughs> there is what's called the Majun. Um, oh, right. Which yeah, is Majun. Oh, the Goo Ball. Yes, yeah, it's right. this recipe for a kind of like a cannabis treat. And there's actually this uh, really cool episode of Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain where he travels all the way to Morocco and he finds people who still make majun uh, the traditional way. Of course, network standards and practices prohibit me from even tasting this delicious and reportedly mind-altering treat. I'm guessing anyway. So until I see Chris John and Wolf doing bong rips in the Situation Room, I will of course abide by these rules. Because that's the kind of guy I am. And and is majun always made with hash, or is there majun and hash majun? No, majun is hash. It's always made with hash. Always makes. If it don't have hash, it ain't majun. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So you and I, being actually have a majun experience of our Mm -hmm. own. So we did an episode of Bang Appetit, the web series for Munchies, and we met up with this woman named Deborah. Uh, in Northern California, and we made majun. There it is, a little infused ball of majun, rolled in mixed nuts, and infused with about 100 milligrams of cannabis ghee. And I can't wait to eat one of these. I got so fucking high, maybe the most (laughs) high that I've ever been on camera, and that is saying a lot, because I've been very, very high on camera many, many, many times. And... This is one of the highest. And they were filming and totally included it in the final episode. That was such a fucking good time, Bean. Oh, my God. That was great. And we made our own hash in that episode. That's right. We made our own hash with Billy, our friend uh, up north. Yeah. Really cool lady. We made ice hash. And then we brought it down to Deborah. And she made majun. Well, we made majun with her. And we got high as fuck and smoked hookahs as well. Indeed. And so, you know, her recipe had like 30 different ingredients. The real thing in researching this is majun isn't really like a single recipe. It's kind of a basic set of techniques and ingredients, and then you put it together how you want. So almost Mm -hmm. like how every Italian grandmother has a tomato gravy that is a little different to that family. I make mine a little spicy. (laughs) 
<laughs> I my 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 nanny made hers a little spicy too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then every Moroccan family would have like their own unique way to prepare majoun. So when Brian is adapting the recipe sort of for this cookbook and Western palates and pantries, really, Mm -hmm. he has to kind of simplify it because a lot of these ingredients wouldn't be available to people in the U.S. and parts of Europe where the book is going to be sold. Um, And he also renames it hashish fudge, even though it really basically is a majoun, uh, probably just so people have some conception of it, but what what ends up happening is people put it in, like, the brownie category in their minds, and that's how the meme of the pot brownie becomes a pot brownie. No freaking way. Okay, that is really interesting. So what you're saying is the evolution was that there was majun, and then post-Alice Tokla's cookbook, this guy, Brian, who is this worldly world traveler guy who went ate the OG, yeah. OG Majun, the OG Majun. OG Majun. OG Majun. In France. <laughs> yeah, en Francais. So, and then so he rebrands it as cannabis fudge. Hashish fudge. Hashish fudge. And that becomes sort of translated through the culture into the weed brownie, which is the ubiquitous edible. I mean, the weed brownie is literally like, it was the only edible for a very long time. The word, I'm in this weed game long enough, I can't pinpoint the first time I heard the word edibles Yeah, in that context of food with weed in it. Yeah, it was not that long ago, though. It was not that long ago, and before that, you said pot brownies, no matter what. It was That's, the yes. only way to make somebody understand yep. it was food with weed in it. Yep, yep, yep. That's right. Pot brownies. Exactly. And that's how this happens. And and it's kind of a story of, depending on how you look at it, it could be a story about cultural exchange. It could be a story about cultural appropriation. I certainly think that, you know, Brian lived in Morocco for many, many years. Uh He was immersed in that culture. He cared about it. Uh So I don't think he changed the name for bad purposes, mm. I think he just thought it was funny or, or thought it would make more sense to people or whatever. Yeah, sure. It's it's uh, clearer branding. You know what I yeah. mean? Majun is like not, you know, it's it's the, the word is not, it's not self-explanatory what that is. But if you say hashish fudge, I get what that is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take one teaspoon black peppercorn, one whole nutmeg, four average sticks of cinnamon, one teapot coriander. These should all be pulverized in a mortar. About a handful each of stoned dates, dried figs, shelled almonds, and peanuts. Chop these and mix them together. So this is interesting that a couple of the things she's mentioned are in the Ayurveda and are described in various places as mixtures with cannabis. So black pepper, for example, which contains beta caryophylline, which is the terpene that's also found in cannabis, it's known to kind of mellow out a high. So there is an old, you know, kind of uh, old wives tale or old kind of urban legend, you would say, that if you're really, really stoned, you should chew black peppercorns because it'll calm down your high a little bit. Because of that terpene, it actually does sort of 
even out the high a little bit and take the edge off of it. Um, coriander, I feel like there's that's also an Ayurvedic herb. So, I mean, I'm sure there's some sort of correlation there as well. A bench of cannabis satida can be pulverized. This alone with the spices should be dusted over the mixed fruit and nuts kneaded together about a cup of sugar dissolved in a big pat of butter rolled into a cake and cut into pieces or made into balls about the size of a walnut it should be eaten with care two pieces are quite sufficient oh wow and does it say a specific measurement for how much weed goes into it Yes, it does very precisely. It says a bunch. A bunch. A bunch of cannabis sativa. And so is she talking about actually grinding up like dried cannabis flowers or using hash specifically or it's unspecified? Well, the recipe gets into this. Here's here's the last part. Obtaining the cannabis may present certain difficulties, but the variety known as cannabis sativa grows as a common weed, often unrecognized, everywhere in Europe, Asia, and parts of Africa, besides being cultivated as a crop from the manufacture of rope. In the Americas, while often discouraged, its cousin called Cannabis Indica has been observed even in city window boxes. It should be picked and dried as soon as it has gone to seed while the plant is still green. Sounds great. Tastes great. Makes you feel very great. Yeah, well, but here's what happens. Mm. Uh, upon, so, so, and remember, this is like, she's rushing to put this book together. Yeah. This crazy Brian guy gives her the recipe for hashish fudge. Yeah. She gets it to the publisher. Here's all the recipes. Uh, and, and then upon publication in 1954 in Europe, the inclusion of this hashish fudge recipe sparks a media scandal and that led to it being a bestseller. Give the people what they want, as they <laughs> say. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that is is seriously like it's it's so awesome to hear that even back then, cannabis was sparking curiosity in this way. And so, I'm guessing that a lot more people started uh, making weed food at home after this, right? I mean, oh yeah. So, well, the you know. First thing we should note is this, you know, completely gets Alice B. Toklas back on her feet. Oh, yeah, that's right. So she had fallen on hard times. So this was exactly what she was looking for. But it was a total accident. You know what I mean? It was nothing that she planned or engineered. You know, it was it was a confluence of events and being in the right place at the right time and knowing the right cool dude who uh, had a killer majun recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it doesn't get you back on your feet to having like fifty Picassos. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it it gives her an ability to live the rest of her life in comfort and and dignity and and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the cookbook is published in America, the publisher takes out the hashish fudge recipe. Oh, I mean, that's kind of like, you know, might as well take all the fucking recipes out of it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're going to take out that one. I mean, that's kind of a dumb thing because... Did that publisher not realize that that's what was selling that fucking book at those numbers? I mean, 
Do they not like to sell books? What the hell were they thinking? It's 1954. That's a square. That's like peak square, probably for the United States. It's exactly like one generation after the first prohibition in the United States, you know? All the kids were indoctrinated by that fucking propaganda of reefer madness are now adults operating Mm -hmm. in the world. It's a dark time uh, in America in terms of cannabis perceptions. Racism is at a crazy high. Cannabis is totally a part of that sort of discrimination. Oh, that is so fucking dumb. So how does the book do in America? Uh, Well, the uh, first edition, uh, I don't think does very well. (laughs) But what happens is in the early 1960s, a new American edition of the cookbook is published and it includes the restored hashish fudge entry. And so by now, all these beatniks and then later hippies just start passing around the book. And that's really when this pop brownie meme gets started. But so now, another turn. After the American version comes out with the recipe, it becomes like this hippie thing. And then in 1968, Peter Sellers stars in a film called I Love You, Alice B. Toklas. Huh where he goes from square to hippie immediately after eating a toakless brownie. They're very good. <laughs> they're, uh, they're groovy. Um, so it's a really, really funny, weird film, but it, it, they're creating these memes. He yeah. accidentally, you know, he eats one and his whole thing changes, then his parents huh. eat them by mistake and they have a wild adventure and then he goes full into a hippie lifestyle. Uh, huh. And then ultimately he has all these realizations about himself. It's, and I mean, it's pretty good Peter Sellers. I'm a huge fan of, of his comedy as well. Oh, um, yeah. And it's even got a totally killer, weird theme song. And you know what I found out doing some research yes. is Tommy Chong huh. saw this movie, I Love You, Alice B. Toklas, in 1968 uh-huh. in Detroit before Chicha Chong. And then in there, he determined, I'm going to become a uh, weed comedian, ha. filmmaker, hippie. No way. Holy shit. There's layers to this thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow, that's fucking crazy. So this movie is what inspired Tommy Chong to essentially give way to a barrage of Cheech and Chong movies. Dude, that's really fucking nuts. He moved from where he was living to Venice Beach, California, where this film was set to live as a hippie, live there for a while. That's where he sort of created the character of, you know, man, his his classic character. Yeah, yeah. What you probably just think of as Tommy Chong. Yeah. He did all his field research there, brought it back up to Canada, and that's where Cheech and Chong met and developed the act. And so then from there, and then this just solidifies the pot brownie Like we said, it's the Kleenex of edibles. Oh, yeah. And it becomes this meme, and it shows up in all these different TV episodes. So some of my favorites Mm -hmm. are, there was a time when Laverne and Shirley found themselves at a wild party in Hollywood. 
So everyone was smoking weed in the, quote, jolly room at mm-hmm. this Hollywood party. <laughs> and Laverne really wants to join them, but Shirley warns her off. Laverne, don't you remember in high school that movie we saw, Reaper Zombies? Yeah, those zombies look like they were having a pretty good time. Laverne, come on, please. Oh, my goodness, what have we here, Laverne? Your favorite brownie. And so Laverne and Shirley end up getting high, eating brownies they didn't realize had weed in them. (laughs) That's really great. Yo, shout out the Laverne and Shirley writer who is definitely a stoner who uh, obviously put that like-minded joke in there. Yeah, friend of the podcast and uh, get in touch. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Here's one I I, I think, I'm pretty sure you're into this show. There was a Frasier Christmas special uh, aptly titled High Holidays Uh where Niles decides to get high as an act of rebellion. Just take a look. Ah, yes, thick and gooey ganja in its purest form. (laughs) It's a pot brownie, you idiot. I'm especially looking forward to something called the munchies stage. It's where one enjoys bizarre food combinations. I'm thinking of pairing this Chilean sea bass with an aggressive Zinfandel. And then, of course, the most important weed brownies of all time were the ones made with both THC and TLC by Brownie Mary, who baked her magically delicious weed treats for AIDS patients and helped usher in the era of medical cannabis. Yes, absolutely. Brownie Mary, a really, really important icon in the fight for cannabis legalization in the United States. If you haven't yet, Definitely go and check out our Brownie Mary episode and it'll connect to this one in a really great way. Yeah, those connections you're talking about between episodes, even here, we saw a connection to the Hashish Club, to what was going on in this salon in Paris in the 1920s, onto a Peter Sellers movie. All those connections are what weave together into a culture. Yeah, exactly. And you know what, though? What's that? I'm out of prepared remarks, but... I promised you something. What's that? What did I promise you at the beginning of this episode? Oh, yeah, I think you did. What's the treat? What else could it be but... Machine balls. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah, those are made from the Alice B. Toklas recipe available in the Alice B. Toklas cookbook. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is incredible. It is a tray of... Looks like more than a dozen... Majun balls, dozen and a half looks like, oh my God. And uh, are these infused with hash? I put a little delicious. Uh, I was not able to source Moroccan hash, um, but I got the closest thing I could find, a really nice water hash. Ooh. has some of those same elements. I followed the recipe from the Alice B. Toklas cookbook. You know, got the figs, got the dates, the nuts, the spices. I did try one and uh, had a very, very lovely, tasty, mellow experience with it. And, you know, let me know what you think. Have one. That is incredible. Thank you so much, Bean. What a treat. I have not had Majun since uh, we filmed with Deborah, and I'm stoked to eat one of these. Oh, my God. And this is, you know, you're taking a bite of weed history. That is Brian's recipe. Mm-hmm. Given to Alice, be toeless and shared with the world. And now I'm happy to share it with you. Ah, oh, that's so nice. Here, would you eat one with me? Absolutely. Excellent. Well, cheers to you, Bean. Cheers to you Bean. and to Alice B. Toklas. And to you at home as well. I love you, Alice B. Toklas. <laughs> 
Great Moments in Weed History is a Spoke Media production. It's hosted by me, Abdullah Saeed, and David Bienenstock, a.k.a. Bean. We're produced by Cody Hoffmachel and Brigham Mosley, with help from Lee George and Reyes Mendoza. Special thanks to Gold Digger Studio. This episode was mixed by Jonathan Villalobos. Our head of post-production is Will Short. Our executive producers are Aliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds. Check out our show notes where you'll find more information about things we discussed today and links to our sponsors. And very special thanks to all of our supporters on Patreon. Find out how you can help support the show and get cool benefits by visiting patreon.com slash G-M-I-W-H podcast. And if you're enjoying our show, please tell your friends about it at your next smoke sesh. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.